it's good to see you back tonight. The kids are over doing the wana, and it's nice. I went out there a little while ago, and uh, there's a bunch of them over there, and it uh, looks good. It looks nice, and they're having a good time. Uh, so I'm thankful that uh, the ministry that you all do and you support and the ministry, the workers are over there supporting and thank you for doing that. Take your Bibles tonight and go to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 1. We're in, we began a series last week about the ministry of Jesus. And if we were doing the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, we would have started with this chapter. But we're not doing it in chronological order, so... Uh, uh, tonight, we are going to deal with uh, a thing that Jesus did in his ministry, really right at the very beginning of his ministry. He turned water into wine. Um, interesting, an interesting thing that he did. Before we read that passage, let's kind of think about a few things about the ministry of Jesus that we know in general. <clears throat> Jesus was around 30 years old when he began his public ministry. In fact, this this miracle is is generally thought of by scholars as the first public miracle that he did, the first thing that he did at the beginning of his ministry. And then you, you might ask yourself, we might ask ourselves, and I hope you do this when you're reading the Bible, that you talk to yourself. It's okay if you do that. You ask yourself questions. Uh, why did Jesus wait until he was 30 to begin his ministry? Now, we don't have a definitive answer about that, but I'll give you a couple of thoughts as we read about the ministry of Jesus. Number one, Joseph is not mentioned very often after, after Jesus was born and he, in his childhood. We know Joseph was still around when Jesus was uh, 12 at the temple because they were together. But after that, we don't know. The idea is that Joseph is not mentioned because he probably died. Well, that being the case, um, in that custom in particular, and according to the law, um, the oldest or the, the siblings, the children, were to take care of their mother, a widow. So I think one of the reasons Jesus perhaps did not begin his earthly ministry earlier, uh, one reason might be because he was taking care of his mother and he, and he stayed near home. And then as his siblings got older and uh, were able to participate, uh, certainly that would have helped. The point in that is this. You know that Jesus lived a sinless life. He obeyed the law perfectly. And, and it was uh, the children's responsibility to take care of their mother. And we see throughout Jesus' life that he cared for his mother. He took care of her. In fact, as he hung on the cross, he said to the apostle John, behold your mother, meaning you take care of her. And John did. The apostle John took care of Mary. So we see Jesus always attentive. The thing, the lesson for us, I believe, is Jesus, at the same time he was on the on the. The, the assignment of the Father on the mission, the purpose that he came, Jesus never neglected his earthly responsibilities. He never neglected those things that he was responsible for. And what that teaches us quite simply is that we can both serve God in the purpose he's called us to in life and be the husband, father, wife, mother that we're supposed to be. In other words, there's, there's no neglecting of one to do the other. And certainly uh, I've Bill and I have talked about it, and other pastors have talked about it. Being in the ministry is no excuse to neglect your family and not be the husband that you should be or the father that you should be to your children. And certainly if a pastor neglects his family, then he really doesn't have a ministry if he can't take care of his marriage and his home. And so we see the example for us in Jesus. But I think probably the more 
important reason that Jesus didn't begin his ministry until he was 30 is because it was the appointed plan of the Father. In other words, Jesus came here, and you know, Jesus himself said, I don't do anything but that the Father tells me to do it. In other words, Jesus didn't begin early. He didn't begin late. He didn't show up early or late. He didn't do a ministry thing early or late. He did it perfectly uh, in keeping in the, in the framed purpose of the Father for him to come. And, of course, the plan was for Jesus to be our sacrifice on the cross and to, uh, and to reveal himself as the Messiah and to do all the things that he did. And, again, the application for you and I as we begin to look at this first part of his ministry is that it's always good for us to not get ahead of God. And it's good for us not to lag behind God. In other words, it's easy for us to say, okay, God, you called me into the ministry, or you called me to teach this class, or you called me to do this ministry, to do this thing, and then we want to do it without asking God how to do it, okay? We, and we want to get ahead of God, or we, or we think we know how to do it. And uh, take, it, take it from a fellow who's messed that up a couple of times. You don't want to get ahead of God, or you don't want to lag behind God. Things really work out better when you're on God's plan and his time and his way, uh, not our way. And so Jesus, I think, in the way his ministry began is an example of both of those things to us. Jesus took care of his domestic responsibilities. He had a mother who was still alive, a widow, uh, who would have very limited ability to make money or take care of herself. And so he and the siblings took care of her. And, and also his heavenly father, Jesus was on two plans. He was taking care of his earthly responsibilities and doing the will of the Father. Uh, if you haven't figured it out by reading the Bible yet, Jesus' life was very busy. You know, he could have probably used a sabbatical at some point, but he didn't, okay? He would simply go up and be alone with the Father for some extended period of time. Jesus is an example for us. Now, if we really wanted to begin in the beginning of his ministry, it began at the end of chapter one with the calling of the disciples. And there were four guys, and we're not going to go back and read all that, but I just want to mention it as it, as it impacts what happens in chapter two. Uh, one of the first people that Jesus talked to to call to follow him was Andrew. <clears throat> and Andrew was the brother of who? Peter. Man, don't make me feel so good. You know that stuff? Right. Andrew is, is Peter's brother. And so Jesus called Andrew. Now, remember this too. This Sunday night, so we'll do a little bit more study school stuff here. It, when Jesus called these guys to follow him, that was not the first time they'd ever seen him or heard him. You, you understand that, right? I mean, they, Jesus had been around teaching, and they had seen him. And, and so when Jesus called them, the Holy Spirit had already been at work in their life. And, and, and so when they made the decision, they're just responding to the call of God on their life. And most people, by the way, statistically, who get saved— some do it the very first time they hear the gospel, but most people have heard the gospel many times, four, five, six, seven times. I forget what the exact average is. But God, the Holy Spirit, has taken the truth and worked on them, and then they come to Christ. Typically, it takes that because we're so hard-headed and we're so stubborn, okay? But the fact is, Andrew came, and then, and then what did Andrew do when Jesus called him? Andrew said, man, this is the, this is the one we've been waiting on. This is the Messiah. His faith, he put his faith in Jesus, and he knew it. And so what was his first instinct? I got to go get my brother. I, I got to go tell somebody. So he, he went and got Peter and he said, hey, Peter, and you know how brothers talk to one another. Hey, dummy, come here. You know, I, you know, I don't know what he said to him. But he, he goes to Peter and he says, you know the one we've been looking for? 
the, the Messiah, the promised one, we found him. You got to come meet him. And so Peter comes and you know the whole interaction. Peter comes and Jesus has a conversation with him. And then, and then Philip, they see Philip and Jesus calls Philip and Philip does the same thing. His, he goes and gets Nathaniel. And there's a pattern here that I, that I would point out very quickly. Jesus calls people to be saved and the Holy Spirit calls them to be saved. And every time you see somebody get saved, and I mean every single time, their first reaction is to go get somebody else. You know what I mean? The fir their first reaction is, this is fantastic. This is the truth. And I just got saved and my sin's forgiven and I'm going to heaven and I know a bunch of people that need what I just got. Okay, and so they, and so they go out and they find people. We've lost that in the church today a little bit, I'm afraid to tell you. People get saved and then they're not gonna tell nobody and they don't invite people to come. Did you know that if you would invite people to come, as a side note here, most of the time they'll come just to be polite. They might not even like you, but because you ask them to come, they might come to be polite. And you know what might happen if they come? They hear the gospel and they might get saved. So let's invite people to come, okay? Share the gospel with them, invite them to come. Now, with all that said, when we get to chapter two, there's a wedding. And so look at verses one and two of John chapter two. And on the third day, there was a wedding. Now, we're not gonna waste a lot of time to deal with this. What third day? Well, probably the third day from the stuff at the end of chapter one, when he's calling those guys. So it says on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. So Mary's there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. That's interesting because they just became his disciples officially a few days ago. And so now they're all invited to the wedding. Now let's think about what we know about this wedding and what we know about the context of weddings in that day because it's really very interesting to think about. Weddings in that day in the first century in Jewish custom weren't exactly like our weddings. In our weddings, a couple meets a man and a woman and they, you know, I love you, you love me, let's get married and they plan a day and if they're, if they're really wise, they get some premarital counseling and then they set a date and boom, the big day's there. Everybody shows up in their finest and they get married. Well, on that day, weddings were a much more protracted deal than that. The, the, the prospective groom would come and give a dowry for her, would get the dad to agree because the, the dad had to say yes. And so he would, I can imagine in that generation, there was a lot of begging and pleading going on from broke young men who didn't have no money. You know, I don't have any money, but I really love your daughter. Can I please, please, pretty please, can I marry her? You know, and, and so this thing goes on. And then there comes a day when the groom uh, is gonna come for his bride. And there's a, and the celebration isn't one day, it's like seven days and sometimes 14 days. And so there's this, this big social event going on because this wedding's a big deal. And, and the whole town, especially a small place like Cana of Galilee, the whole town who knows everybody would get involved. And so this is a, a big social event. And on, the, and on the big celebration, the groom comes for his bride and they have this dinner banquet. And then at the end of the, at the, end of the day, uh, they do the ceremony. And then even when they do the ceremony, they don't get to run off on their honeymoon. They get, uh, the custom was to parade them through town the long way so everybody could see them and wish them well and pat them on the back and say, God bless you. And then they finally go to their house or to the, to the house of one of their parents where they're gonna stay to actually uh, ha have their, their honeymoon. And so this, this process is long. And by the way, here's a pop quiz for you, you ready? This whole scenario of the groom coming for his bride and the banquet, does that remind you of something? Oh, you bet it does. Because that's the same picture that's drawn of the rapture of the church. 
that Jesus is the bridegroom and we're the bride and he's going to come back and he's going to come for his bride. And while the tribulation is going on in this world and, and, the, and the evil ones are getting thumped, guess what we're going to be doing? Part A, right? We're going to be in heaven having the banquet and, and we're going to be the bride and it's going to be fantastic and it's going to be wonderful. So again, a little side note, if you're here and you're lost or you're watching this online and you're lost, here's your choice. Jesus raptures the church and you get left here that's bad. Jesus raptures the church and you're saved and you go to heaven and you get to sit at the banquet with Jesus and be the bride and celebrate with him. Choose B, okay? Don't, don't get left here uh, uh, for the judgment of the wicked. Don't get left here on this earth. So that's the picture of this wedding. Now, that's the thing that Jesus is invited to. That's the thing that Jesus is gonna come to. Now, the second thing that's probably interesting about this is Mary is there, the mother of Jesus. And not only is she there, but when you read the narrative, she knows people. I mean, she's involved in the thing, right? She cares because the wine's gonna run out and she cares. Now, why would she be there and care what's going on? Obviously, we don't know the connection, but she's probably related to the people that are getting married. Somehow, some way, and if she's not related to them, they're really good friends because she's there. And not only is she there, but she's interacting with the people. And when they find out that there's gonna be this the situation that's gonna bring great embarrassment and shame on the family, they're gonna run out of wine, which was in the Jewish uh, culture was a terrible thing to, for the host to run out of wine. She wants to do something about it because she cares about the people. She doesn't want them to be embarrassed. The third thing that I think is interesting about this wedding, and there are a lot more, but I trimmed it down for you, is that Jesus is invited. Mary's invited and they invite Jesus and Jesus goes, well, I got my friends with me. And they say, well, yeah, bring them too. Now, it ain't like today where we just call down to Publix and say, bring me another tray of chicken tenders or whatever you're having at the wedding. They, this family probably wasn't all that wealthy because we know from the whole scenario that they run out of wine and this thing's been going on a while that they had limited resources. And so just to say, yeah, bring four or five more people was a big deal, okay? Because again, the food isn't down at the grocery store if you run out of food, you gotta kill another cow, another pig, another chicken. And having done that in my life, that's, that's not a quick process. You don't you know, say, I'm gonna kill the chicken and we're gonna eat in an hour. Mm -mm. Okay, it's gonna take a little while. So what I'm saying is they invite Jesus and they want him to be there and they invite him to come even though there's more people. And I was thinking about it this week when I was writing, writing on my notes. And I got to thinking, if you're gonna have a wedding, you always wanna invite Jesus. I mean, even today, if you can have a wedding, you want to invite Jesus. If there's one person you want in your wedding, it's Jesus. If there's one person you want in your marriage, it's Jesus, okay? Because as I said this morning, when the honeymoon phase wears off and each of them rediscovers their individuality, it can be World War III. And it is Jesus in the heart of the husband and the wife that creates the home that gets beyond that stuff. And so it was good on them that they invite Jesus to be uh, part of the wedding. Then there's some other things to think about. Jesus is at the wedding. And there are some things that I want you to notice. There are a couple of things that we can notice about the fact that Jesus is there. And one, one is this. If you notice in the ministry of Jesus, he never had a problem participating in the celebrations of life. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, I have met people in my life that are so religious, they're dull. 
They're so religious, they're a prude. And I could think of a lot of other words to describe them. But the thing is, they're so religious, they don't know how to have fun. They don't know how to laugh. Now listen, I'm not a frivolous person. You ask my wife. I'm, I was telling somebody earlier, you know, you have emotional up and downs. You have this sine wave. Yeah, mine's about as big. I don't, I just, I'm, I'm just like, you know, I get upset or I'm really happy and it only moves about that much. And that's just the way God made me. But I enjoy, it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy life because we're saved. Everybody follow me? I mean, it doesn't mean that we can't, that we can't hang out with friends and laugh and have a good time or enjoy fellowship or go to a wedding and celebrate. You know, I had Christians say, oh, I won't go to a wedding. They're gonna have a daughter daddy dance and they're dancing. Man, get over yourself. I mean, come on, all right? Now, now, now listen, as Christians, we do have a testimony. And so I wouldn't recommend going to a wedding and getting sloshed, okay? I mean, I, that, that's sinful because the Bible says don't get drunk. In fact, from my personal convictions, I wouldn't drink alcoholic beverages. I know some Christians do, and I give you a list as long as my arm about why you shouldn't drink alcoholic beverages, but that's another sermon. The fact is, if I go to a wedding and I celebrate for the bride and groom and I'm there to celebrate with them, nothing wrong with enjoying the meal and having fellowship and hugging them and saying, man, I'm so proud of y'all and, and, and celebrating with them and rejoicing in, in a thing that God allows us to do. And you find in Jesus' life that he did that. He went to stuff. I'm telling you, I've, I've met Christians that are, that are, that are trying to be so religious and, and, and so upright that they're, they're antisocial and they're boring. And it's like, good night, man, come on. I mean, we can, we can hang out, we can, you're saved, you can do whatever kind of recreational stuff you like, ride motorcycles, shoot guns, go fishing. You can do stuff and hang out with friends and eat and, and you don't have to you know, walk in with your head down and, and, and humming to yourself in some Gregarian chant. You don't have to do that stuff. I mean, Jesus went to a wedding, right? And he's, he's there fellowshipping with them. And notice that Jesus, he's God. He doesn't stop the wedding and start teaching a parable. No, he's there celebrating with them. He's supporting them. He's encouraging them. Now, again, we need to protect our testimony at all times. You know, don't, don't do something that will hurt your testimony or something that, that contradicts your convictions. But we don't have to be boring. When I, when I was in school, in one of my, one of my times I was in school, we were studying the, the asceticism in the Middle Ages and the people would go live in a cave. And separate, you know, and the idea was this. And I get the idea and, I, and, I, and honestly, I, God bless them for, for being so disciplined because what they would do is they would say, my flesh is weak and I don't want to be around anything that tempts me. And if it was a guy, I don't want to be around women. I don't want to be around alcohol. I don't want to be around other people, any social things that would tempt me to think something wrong or to do something wrong. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide in a cave and just meditate on God all day. And I'm going to pray and meditate on God. Hmm. Well, good for them. But the Bible doesn't tell us we have to do that at all. In fact, the Bible says there's joy in life and there's goodness in life. And God created us to enjoy that. In fact, if God didn't want us to enjoy it, he wouldn't have given it to us, right? Especially a wedding ceremony. So Jesus and his friends went to uh, 
a wedding ceremony. And the second thing that I, I think the fact that Jesus is at this wedding tells us is very important. The fact that Jesus would willingly go there authenticates and validates the marriage covenant. That Jesus would go there and support it validates the very, listen, the very thing that he created in the beginning. Listen to me very carefully here. And I know this won't play well in the world today, but it is the truth. When God created the first two human beings, he created Adam, who was a man. And he created Eve, who was a woman. And God performed the first wedding in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says he brought Eve to Adam and presented her to him. And Adam was beside himself. God, you made a lot of good stuff, but that's very good. Man, that's fantastic. She's just what I was looking for. I've been looking around here and something was missing. You know, two giraffes and two anteaters and not, you know, but there wasn't nobody here like me and God, you did good. That's, you know, and that's what you can read in what Adam said. He was, he was very happy. And they became husband and wife in the garden. God put them together. And the Bible says they became one flesh. And God told them to have kids and raise and, and, and fill the earth. That whole pattern, that whole model that God created in the Garden of Eden and gave to us is God's pattern for marriage and it's God's pattern for the family. And that's where children are supposed to be raised. And I'll tell you something, the mess that we're in in society today, the mess of social issues we're dealing with is because we've broken God's basic structure for life because we've broken the marriage vows and we've broken the, the foundation or the building blocks of society. You know? And here's the part that the world really won't like and it's going online, so take it, take it or leave it. God didn't create two men and put them in the garden and marry them together. Amen. God didn't create two women and put them in the garden and marry them together. For us to mess with the marriage covenant and for two men to say they're getting married or two women to get married is, is, is an insult to God who created us. And I'm gonna read to you exactly how I wrote it in my notes. I know the truth will offend those who believe in homosexual lifestyle is acceptable. But I humbly and kindly submit to you that God will have the last word. You can say what you want. And right now God is letting people do whatever they think they wanna do, but he's not blind and he's not ignoring it. And you write it down online, wherever you're at, God will have the last word. It's God's law. God created us. And Jesus went to a wedding of a man and a woman and validated the very institution that he founded. And I'll add this, marriage is a gift from God. I mean, for God to give you a mate or me a mate to live life with, to have fellowship with, to have intimacy with, to be able to share the most intimate things in life with is a gift from God. That's a relationship that you just can't replace and you just can't get anywhere. And over the years, it gets better and it gets, it gets sweeter and it gets more wonderful. And God created it that way. And man has no responsibility to mess with what God made, no matter what we think or what we think is so uh, advanced in our society. Now, Jesus is at this wedding and we could say more about it, but Let's get to the rest of it. While Jesus is at the wedding, they have a problem. They have a problem that's a big deal because in Jewish custom, the wine, and let me say this about the wine real quick. 
I know, every, you know, people watching, oh, look at there, man, they had wine. No, listen to me. It was, you can look this up historically. Typically, it was one portion of wine and two parts water, okay? It was Jews, it was, it was an insult for them to become intoxicated. They didn't, they didn't just drink to become intoxicated like we do today or like people do today. The, the water wasn't always pure and they mixed the, the wine with it and, and they drank it in reason and they didn't get sloppy drunk. So it's not even the same. So don't even try to have that conversation if that's the way a person's thinking. To run out of wine at this feast would be a great humiliation for the parents, a great insult to the bride and the bridegroom it was a major social issue. And so when Mary finds out about it, and you say, why would Mary care? Again, she's connected somehow. She's either related to these people, you know, their moms and dads, somehow she cares. And she's there and she notices it. And so she comes to Jesus. Now that's interesting in and of itself. Look at verses three to five. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, and isn't it interesting in this gospel, by the way, in particularly in the story, he doesn't use her name. He just says the mother of Jesus, okay? And she came to Jesus in verse three and said, they have no wine. Now, now look at Jesus' response. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now her response to that is, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Isn't that an interesting exchange between Jesus and his mother? Do you find that a little strange? Well, let's think about it for a minute. The first thought might be, someone might say, well, Jesus was disrespectful to his mother. Not at all, not at all. In fact, Jesus was completely obedient to the law. He would never break the law. And the law says we're to honor our, our father and our mother. And it doesn't mean just when you're a kid, but it means when you're older too. Okay, you honor them. You respect them as your parents. Jesus would never never, ever, ever in eternity disrespect his mother. You say, well, then why did Mary come to him and why did she ask this question? Well, let's think about it for a minute. I don't think she had an expectation of a miracle because there's no indication in the Bible up to this time Jesus had ever done a miracle. If he did, it isn't recorded in the Bible. But why do you think Mary would go to Jesus with this problem? I, sub I submit to you that she knew her son. Mary knew who he was. And she knew that when she got pregnant with him because the angel told her, oh, God's picked you, you're special and you're gonna have his son and his savior of the world. She knew who Jesus was all along. Who better, listen, who better to take your problems to than Jesus? I suggest to you, she didn't know what he's gonna do. She may not know if he's gonna do anything, but he'd be the one to take your problem to if you got a problem, right? And so she goes to her son and she says, hey, um, they're out of wine. And what a testimony she is. She goes to Jesus and said, here's my problem. I don't know what you're gonna do with it. I don't know how you're gonna fix it, but here you go. And she goes on her way. Man, I like that. Isn't that how we ought to come to Jesus today with our problems? Lord, I got this problem here and I don't know what to do with it and I can't fix it. And so here you go. Um, I don't know what you're gonna do with it. I don't know if you're gonna answer my prayer the way I'm asking it, or if you got your own plan, but here it is, and I'm not gonna worry about it because I'm just gonna give it to you. Well, that's how to deal with problems. That's how you deal with problems. Now, I know we're human and we still, you know, Mary's probably still over in the corner going, man, I hope Jesus gets some wine going here or something. You know I mean? You know, if she's human, but the fact is she brings it to Jesus 
And she gives it to him. And she trusts him. Man, what faith. We should have the same kind of faith. Now look at Jesus' response. He says to her woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. Now again, there's no disrespect here. The term for woman here is a common word that was used, it might be like us saying lady uh, or something like that. It's not a disrespectful term. And Jesus says to her, what does your concern have to do with me? Now here's what he's saying to her. He's not saying I'm not gonna help you and he's not saying that, that, that you can't come to me with your issues. But Mary has in a little bit here, presumed on him as his mother saying, hey, this is family or friends or whatever the connection is, and we got to do something. And I think in mine, and listen, you can read all kinds of opinions about this, but I'm going to tell you where my heart is on this. I think Jesus is drawing a line with her right here. He's saying, look, as my mother, I'm, I honor you and I'm obedient to you and, and all the son mother stuff. And he always had been. He said, but now we're, we're moving into the realm of stuff with my heavenly father. Now we're moving into a realm of stuff that, that has to do with more than just the mother son relationship. And what he's saying to her is, you gotta understand you're my mother, but I'm here on the heavenly father's business and to try to persuade or move me to do heavenly father stuff before the time or after the time is not in your realm of, of asking me what to do. And you say, well, is that disrespectful? No, that's not disrespectful, that's just true. And that's just Jesus making the situation clear to her. And then he says to her, it's not my hour yet. So what's he saying? And you say, well, how do you know that's what he was doing because of the next statement? He said, my hour's not come yet. Well, what's he saying? Well, I'm on this mission from the father and it's not my time yet to fully reveal myself. It's not my time yet to do those things. And ultimately his hours to go to the cross and to die. And he said, it's not time yet. And so he's saying to his mother, I'm on this, I'm on this plan, I'm on this path. And he told him that when he was 12 years old, remember? I mean, they come, he's still in the temple and they're confusing the scholars as a 12 year old and they come get him. Why are you, why are you back here? And he goes, oh, I gotta be about my father's business. Yeah, I'm thanks for coming back to get me, but I got another thing to do here. Jesus tells his mother, look, I'm, I'm busy about the Father's will, uh, but now watch this. What's Mary's response? Get huffy puffy and stomp off, you know? Wait, what do you mean? What do you mean you aren't gonna help me? No, nah, I love Mary. She's awesome. She just looks over at the servants and goes, look, I got all that. Whatever he tells you to do, you do it. And she turns around and walks away. Okay, she's like, I got it, son. You servants, he's going to tell you to do something and whatever he tells you to do, you just do it and everything will be good. Man, I love that kind of faith, don't you? I love it. Jesus says, look, now I'm on the Father's business. And he goes, good for you, son. Whatever he tells you to do, you do it, okay? You just do whatever he tells you to do. Now look at what happened. Look at verses six to 10. Here's the miracle. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Uh, let me just pause there. These six water pots <clears throat> were for the Jewish process of purification. It would be a couple of things. When they would travel a long distance, their feet would get dirty. They would use the water to clean their feet. And then before they would eat, the Jews had to wash 
the right way. They had to wash their hands and then they'd hold their hands up, let the water run off. There's this whole process. If you can't sleep one night, get you a, a commentary and read about how they did all that ceremonial stuff. But the fact is these, this water was used for that for the guests to come in and properly wash so they could come in to the banquet. So Jesus uh, is gonna use these six water pots and that 20 to 30 gallons in the New King James, uh, in the King James, it's like, uh, uses different words, to, but the closest, we don't know for sure, but they were large pots. And so 20 to 30 gallons is, is in the ballpark. So it's a lot of water is what I'm telling you. So six pots, if it was just 20 gallons, uh, two times six is 12, what, 120 gallons of water in these pots. And you're gonna find out in a minute, they filled them up to the brim. They filled them all the way up to the top so nothing else could be put in there. So now look at verse seven. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Verse eight, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. Uh, so they did and they took it. Verse nine, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior or the less better wine, you have kept the good wine until now. Oh, I love this, I love this story. And let me just, let me just type, this is fantastic. So Mary says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And she goes, she goes on her way. And so Jesus then says, hey, take the six water pots out there and fill them up with water. Now, I'm, I don't know if the pots had water in them. I don't know if they had been used up or, or what if they had to dump, but they filled them up to the brim. So the things are, are slapped full of water so nothing else can get in there. And then Jesus simply tells them, take some dip out of there and take it to the master uh, of the ceremony. There was a person in the banquet who was like the master of ceremony. He was the one who kind of ran things, right? Get everybody together and he's the one in charge. And so he said, take him some wine. And when they took it to him, he drank it and he calls the bridegroom over and he says, well, you did this backwards of normal custom. What normally would happen is when the guests first arrive, they put the best wine out because their palates are fresh and they want it to taste the best. But then as people throughout the time of the banquet have been drinking the wine and their palates a little more dull, they take the expensive stuff away and they, they slide out the stuff that's not so good and nobody knows the difference, right? Well, the master of the ceremony drinks this wine that was made from the water that Jesus just turned into wine. And he calls the bridegroom and he goes, man, he goes, usually people put the good wine out and then put the bad stuff out later. You saved the very best wine all the way till the end. Now, let me make some observations about this. Number one, and probably most important here, Jesus had compassion for the needs of that family and that couple at a wedding. Think about it. Do you think Jesus had important stuff on his mind? Yeah, I'm going to the cross here in a few years and I gotta die for the sin of the world. I would say Jesus probably had some serious stuff going on in his mind. You think he's busy calling disciples and getting putting that band of, of young men together so that he could set up the 12 to carry on the ministry? Jesus has got a plan. And man, he's working the plan and he gets invited to a wedding and they have a catastrophe. And Jesus loved them enough to care about their need in their life to meet it. Man, I love that. 
Because sometimes it's easy for us to think, Lord, I know you're busy running the universe and everything. And I, and I know you're busy saving people in the church and, you know, and, and, and working out your plan. But Lord, this thing's really important to me. And you ask God for what you want. And here's the good news. He hears you and he cares. That's good, isn't it? I don't care what your need is. He hears you and he cares. Jesus had compassion and, and kindness so that this family would not be embarrassed. And then secondly, the miracle itself. I don't know how many sermons I've heard about from this passage, bunches. I don't know how many times I've studied it, bunches. And they say, well, how did Jesus make the water into wine? Just like God does everything else, he just does what he wants to do, okay? I mean, I've heard sermons about when did it turn into wine? When they put it in the pot or when they dipped it out, did it turn into wine in the cup? I have a clue. All I know is when the guy drank it, he said, this is the best wine we've had here so far. So somewhere between the water being in the pot and the guy drinking it, it was wine. You say, well, how did that happen? Jesus simply willed it to be so. He didn't touch it. He didn't even say anything. He didn't go, I command the water to be wine. He didn't, he didn't, he, he didn't do anything. He just said to the servants, dip out of the water pot and give it to the master of the ceremony. And when they did, it was wine. I don't know when he made it wine. I don't know how he turned it into wine. But you know what? God created water. He created grapes. He created all the nutrients and elements that exist on the planet to make grapes, that get smashed into wine. What I'm saying is this is a really small thing for Jesus just to turn that water into wine with his will, just because he wanted it to be. That's it. That's the answer. Turn the water into wine. What I will tell you is this. It was a miracle of creation. It was a miracle of making something be what he wanted it to be. And only God can do that. Only God can do that. The third thing that I think is interesting about it, we'll wrap it up, is the only people that knew what happened was who? The servants. The servants. They're the only one. And the only reason they know is because Jesus said, fill it up with water. They filled it up with water. They know they put water in there. Right? They didn't put wine in there because there ain't no wine. They put water in the pot, and when they give it to the master of the ceremony, he said, man, this is fantastic wine. Can you just imagine a servant who handed them a cup looking at every servant going, I don't know where the wine came from. Did you put wine in there? No, man, I put water in there. And the, the servants knew. They knew Jesus did it. Jesus did the miracle without making a fanfare about it. Nobody knew where it came from. You know, sometimes... Matter of fact, most of the time, Jesus just blesses us in the normal course, normal course of life. No big fanfare, no big fantastic thing. He just blesses us every day, just in the normal things of life. And finally, the last two things about it, we'll close. It was the best, and it was abundant. It was the best, and it was abundant. The master ceremony said, man, this is good wine. Why would we expect anything less? Jesus don't make junk. If Jesus is going to make wine, it's good wine. If Jesus is going to make something, it's good. Jesus made you and you're good. 
Not as good as you're going to be one day, but he made you. God created a world and it's good, isn't it? Matter of fact, every time God created, what did he say? God saw it and it was good. Because God don't make anything that's bad. Sin messed up everything that was good, not God. Everything God made was good. It wasn't just good, it was perfect. And then notice, even if it was 20 gallons in each bucket or each bowl or each thing, that's 120 gallons of wine. That's probably more wine than they had all week. So when Jesus made the wine, he didn't make a little bit. He didn't make a couple of cups. Let me put it this way. When Jesus met the need, they didn't have to worry about running out again because Jesus met the need, right? Isn't that the way Jesus meets our need? Jesus said, I ain't gonna save you just a little bit. I'm gonna save you a lot. I'm not gonna save you just a little bit to last a little while. I'm gonna save you completely and I'm gonna make you brand new and I'm gonna keep you with me forever. That's how God rolls. That's how God works. And we see it in this miracle in the ministry of Jesus. If you're here tonight, you've never been saved. You've never prayed and asked Jesus to forgive your sin. Listen, you need to do it right now, right now. Not tomorrow, not later, but right now. I'm gonna pray in just a moment. And if you've never confessed your sin to God and asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sin and save your soul, do it right now. Don't wait. You say, whoa, boy, I know I need to be saved, but I'm just not sure. No, be sure. God loves you and he wants to save you right now. And you have to ask him. You got to ask him. He wants to save you, but you got to receive him. He's got the gift. He's offering it. Will you receive it tonight? Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage and the testimony, Jesus, of how you love us and you met the need of this family in a time of celebration, Lord, and you blessed them at that wedding. God, you bless us every day. You bless us with life and with health and with things. And God, even when times are tough, you bless us through the tough times. God, you've not blessed us a little bit, but you've blessed us abundantly. Lord, maybe there's somebody here tonight. Maybe there's somebody who will watch this video online or has watched it live tonight. And God, they've never come and, and been a partaker of eternal life. They've never come and accepted you Right now, God, right now in the quietness of this moment, I pray from wherever they sit in this auditorium or at home or in their car, that God, they might just say to you, God, I, I know that I've sinned against you, Lord, and I am, I'm wrong. And God, you're right and you're holy. And Jesus, I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sin so that I could be saved. And so God, by faith, I ask you to come into my heart and save me right now. Forgive my sin, Lord, make me new on the inside. God, you'll save anybody who will ask. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. But stand as we sing. If I can pray with you or help you, you come on the first verse. I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time that I don't know, what to do I will cast all my cares upon you Amen Let's pray as we go Father thank you for this day for the services this morning and Juana tonight and, and the time of Bible study in here Lord bless it to our heart